Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, which you are now tuned into our Citation Classics. This is something that we have started this year and has gotten a pretty good response so far, so I'm glad that you all are liking it. I'm glad we expanded the team, and they are absolutely crushing these episodes. And today, they're going to talk about some of the highest cited articles on open fractures and they do it in a, in a pretty pretty cool unique way I, I like how they uh, structured this episode but you know we have our returning trauma team dr brown we have nicholas todd brie and we also have olu uh who is who is who has just started his residency everybody's actually bumped up a year since our last episode so please i hope y'all enjoy this episode a lot if you want to take a look at some of the articles and some of the figures that we have check out the youtube channel there is a video accompanying this episode as well that is in the link in the description below and without further ado let's go ahead and get into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast Hello and welcome back to Citation Classics with our with our trauma team. The trauma dogs are back at it again. Um, we're continuing our adventures in trauma with some discussion of another basic trauma topic, open fractures and soft tissue injury, and how we manage that in our trauma patients. So let's get started. Uh, once again, we identified our papers uh, for the Citation Classics. We're looking for classic articles that are influencing our treatment and then also articles that are, are brought up and cited by other, other articles because they are such foundational um, literature. And, and we looked in all of our major journals as well as utilizing orthobullets and, and most cited uh, searches, as you see. An important thing to discuss as we get started is, is the contributions of Dr. Castillo and Dr. Anderson for soft tissue injuries and trauma. You've all heard of the Castillo-Anderson classification. It goes from one, two to three, with three then further being broken down. It started back in uh, 1976, Castillo and Anderson published uh, the, the classification of the different types of soft tissue injury into one, two, and three, with one being a wound less than one centimeter, so kind of your punctate wound, two being greater than one centimeter with no extensive soft tissue damage, and three being extensive soft tissue damage. In 1984, Dr. Castillo went back and kind of reviewed and, and did a, a repeat review of his more extensive injuries of the type threes and found that just saying extensive soft tissue damage didn't, didn't do it justice. And so he went back and suggested that we actually separate the type threes into type three A, type three B and type three C. And type 3A means there's extensive soft tissue damage, but there is actually adequate coverage. And so basically there's enough tissue there to, to then get secondary coverage to repair and, and allow it to primarily heal and then, or secondary heal. And then type B means that there's extensive soft tissue damage with inadequate coverage. So basically these are people who will require a flap down the road. And then type C being folks that have an arterial injury uh, requiring repair. And the, the importance of this classification, as we move from one to three, we see an increased risk of infection. As we move greater on from 3A to 3C, we see an increased risk of infection. And in fact, with 3C in particular, we see an increased risk for amputation down the road. Uh, but it's a, a way to quick look at something and, and categorize it in your mind. And it does uh, help guide antibiotic prophylaxis. Typically, uh, as published in 1984, we do a first-generation cephalosporin for types 1 and 2, 
and then we add on an aminoglycoside uh, for grade three. And keep in mind, this is this is back in 1984, and the reason why he added on the aminoglycoside for grade three in his recommendation is because he found throughout the 70s, he had an increased incidence of gram negatives in the type three injuries, and so wanted to make sure that they had coverage for that. Basically, what this means is our antibiotic biogram changes from hospital to hospital and time to time. So, it, so it's important to follow up with whatever hospital you're at and figure out what their process is and what orthopedic department, um, what their process is to deal with each of these fractures. I know uh, my institution has a, a, a little bit of their own flavor of this, but of course guided by this, this foundational paper. All right, so that's a, a good little background and basis for, for approaching the soft tissue injuries and we'll go ahead and keep going. We're gonna try something new this, this time around. We're gonna kind of interpret all these papers in the context of, of two patients. So first we'll have one is a 30s year old male. He's healthy, he was an MVC, comes in with an open tibia, a 3B. So it's gonna require soft tissue coverage. And also gasp, he has blood on his fast exam. So he's looking like he's heading towards the operating room here shortly. And then we're gonna contrast that with the same presentation except the patient's now a 60s year old male with diabetes, he's also a smoker and an alcoholic. And so kind of look at how that might change or does it change our management. And without further ado, let's keep it going. All right, hey everyone, I'm Bree, and we're gonna be starting out with uh, type three open tibia fractures, looking at the immediate antibiotic prophylaxis to see if that minimizes infection. So just a little bit of background, open tibia fractures have been associated with a high risk of infection and the optimal timing for antibiotic prophylaxis had not yet been determined when they conducted this study. And those higher rates of infection have been correlated with increasing severity of the Gastillo-Anderson classification system uh, that Matt just reviewed for open tibia fractures. And as that correlates, so type three will be greater than type two than greater than type one infection rates. All right, so based on this kind of undetermined timing for antibiotic prophylaxis, the authors of this study developed a 10 month retrospective study completed at a level one trauma center to determine the association between antibiotic timing and deep tissue infection in gacillo type three open tibia fractures. And they used deep infection within 90 days of injury as their primary outcome. And they defined that per the CDC criteria for deep surgical site infection. And if you're following along with the slides, you can see the four criteria that they used for that. And based off of this, they hypothesized that the delay in antibiotic therapy would be associated with higher rates of infection and independent of other factors that may be contributing. They were able to identify 137 open tibia fractures that were Gastillo type three, and cases were divided into two groups, uninfected and infected. There were no difference identified between groups except for age, which they showed that younger patients were more likely to receive immediate antibiotic therapy um, rather than delayed, which was seen in older patients. Diving into the results, they showed that wound coverage 
that happen greater than five days from injury and antibiotic administration greater than 66 minutes, we'll say greater than an hour from injury were independently associated with increased risk of infection and that lower rates of infection occurred if wound coverage occurred within five days of injury and antibiotics were given within that first hour of injury. They also importantly showed that there was a progressive risk of infection rate as increased time from injury uh, to antibiotic administration occurred. So overall, the study really showed us that early wound coverage within five days of injury and immediate antibiotic prophylaxis within that first hour of injury were independently associated with decreased rates of deep infection for Castillo type three open tibia fractures. And the authors of this study also advised that wound coverage be performed when the wound is amenable um, and that there may be a possibility for pre-hospital antibiotic prophylaxis uh, to further reduce risk of infection, um, but that will be a whole topic for another discussion. All right. Yeah. So this is, this is great. This is a great paper. I look at a ton of different things, age, smoking, diabetes, injury severity score, 3A versus B or C injury, time to debridement, and uh, as well as the time to antibiotics and time to wound coverage. And it found that those two had the strongest and, or, or the one, the, the um, most significant uh, connection with risk for infection later. I mean, we already know that diabetes and smoking increase the risk, and this found that that time to early antibiotics and and early wound coverage really help. And and, and at least in this study, seemed like it might even be stronger than the history of diabetes and smoking. Uh, so so Bree, taking a look at this paper and thinking about our patients, we have our thirty year old male who's pretty healthy, and we have our sixty year old male who's pretty much not healthy. Uh, how, how does this paper influence? What, what would you do for these folks? They come right into the, the trauma bay. What do you want to be doing? Yeah, so for our 30-year-old patient and also for our 60-year-old patient, we really want to ensure that their wound is being covered within those five days of injury and they get antibiotic therapy, essentially ASAP, ideally within that first hour of injury to reduce their risk of developing deep infection. And this study, as we showed, um, they saw that younger patients were more likely to receive antibiotics earlier, but really we want to have those same goals for wound coverage and antibiotic administration for our 60-year-old patient as well, considering he has significant risk factors for infection, including diabetes, smoking, and alcoholism. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's the, that's the, really the best thing we can do in, in a trauma setting is just kind of advocating for early antibiotics. Obviously the whole team's going to be focusing on keeping this guy alive and, and doing all that. But what we can, the, the kind of what we're, our role is, is considering downstream effects uh, and just trying to get antibiotics on board early. And then of course, starting the, the communication with our uh, plastics colleagues or whoever is going to be doing the flap uh, early about the importance of getting it going early. And we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more later. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and move, move forward. All right. So next we're going to be jumping into the study by Foote and colleagues. Um, it's a reevaluation of the risk of infection based on time to depreement and open fractures. 
So as we talked about earlier, open fractures are associated with high risks of infection and also significant disability. And the incidence of these types of fractures is increasing globally. Previous studies have pooled together all open fracture types, kind of leading to potential for confounding that may decrease the validity of those previous studies um, and the estimates that they reported. And the authors weren't able to identify any other studies that analyze the time to debridement of open fractures as an independent risk factor in the development of infection. So the authors of this study decided to form the Goliath Research Collaborative to conduct a retrospective systemic review and a medical analysis looking at the association between time to debridement and surgical site infection rates of Gastilla innocent type three open tibia fractures with their primary outcome being surgical site infection. And they hypothesized that delays in debridement would be associated with increased rates of infection in comparison to early debridement. So they were able to identify 84 studies with almost 18, over 18,000 uh, patients for analysis. And they were looking at specifically skeletally mature patients over the age of 17 with open fractures of lung bones, foot or carpus. And they recorded the time to debridement from injury and the number of all infections and or deep infections that were reported within these studies. And looking at their results, they showed that there was a significant increase in surgical site infection with late versus early timing to debridement. There was specifically a significant increase in infection when debridement of tibial fractures and Gastillo type 3B tibial fractures was performed between 12 and 24 hours versus less than 12 hours, which they were kind of using as their criterion for early debridement. Um, but most importantly, there was a progressive increase in infection risk with Gastilla type 3 fractures with time um, cut points at 12 hours and 24 hours. So overall, this study really shows that Gastilla type 3 open fractures are associated with progressive increase in infection uh, with time with the most important cut points being 12 hours and 24 hours, because they also showed that there's a 1.5% and 1.5 times increase from 12 hours and two times increased risk of infection from 24 hours of debridement. Um, and these findings can really only be applied to high grade fractures as lower severity fractures have a kind of a different temporal timeline. Um, so different studies need to be looked at in order to determine those risks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is a, it's kind of this, this is kind of elegant in its simplicity as far as, Hey, we're looking at these very specific things. We're looking at high energy fractures. We're looking at time points of six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. And it found there is an importance to getting to these big severe injuries within within 12 hours or so or and at the very least within 24 hours um and and that plays into our management and so thinking back to our patients we have our 30 year old and our 60 year old what 
what do you think we should be doing? So these people are probably heading to the emergency or heading to the OR because of their positive fasts. Are we are we activating our team and letting them know? Are we we uh, are we saying you know what we'll, we'll take them back at a later time? What do you want to be doing? So while we're in the trauma bay, we really want to ensure that they're undergoing wood wood debridement kind of at the bedside uh, with pain control in order to reduce that infectious burden uh, before taking them to the OR, but as we talked about before, we really want to ensure that they're getting to the OR as quickly as possible. Um, and especially with a 30 year old patient, he's going to the OR for a positive fast exam as well. So we should activate our team and head there as well. Okay, perfect, right. All-star resident over here is uh, exactly. We're, what we can do in the trauma bay is once of course, we know that this person is, is stable or if we have a chance, we communicate with the other teams doing some type of bedside irrigation, right? So if there's gross um, tissue in there, if there's gravel, there's grass, there's dirt, we wanna be trying to reduce that infectious burden. So as soon as we can, getting some type of uh, debridement or irrigation, making sure that they have good pain control and we can get in there and just kind of clean it out. And then we wanna make sure that we're getting for these serious ones, we're getting to them as soon as we can. And an important note is, you know, we're talking about a 12 hour, 24 hour. Uh, timeline. And so, you know, if we get a good bedside debridement, it could be a conversation if this person's not going to the, the operating room right away, maybe this person is appropriate for a first case tomorrow morning, it's going to be within 12 hours, uh, and we can get to them. That's, that's fantastic. But if they're going to the OR already, we can talk to the, the gen surge team, hey, let us know when you guys are getting done with your part, we'll make sure we, we come up there and, and uh, get a good debridement in there and, and make sure we're, we're getting to them uh, taking advantage of the situation where they're already in the OR. And so you're going to see a theme for these, these soft tissue injuries it, it, There's a, and trauma patients in general. There's a huge theme of communication, talking with our emergency department colleagues, getting the antibiotics on board, talking with our gen surge colleagues about the timing of early debridement, and then, of course, possible provisional fixation like, like we were talking about previously. Um, but you're exactly right, Bree. If we can get to them, Let's go ahead and do a bedside irrigation. If they're heading to the OR, let's tag along and take care of them. And then if not, let's get them, get them posted for the next morning and make sure that we're getting them early on board to help reduce that risk for their infection. Um, all right, right on. Next up, uh, I'll be taking you through a, 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 another important article by Pincus et al. in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma back in 2019. This is taking a look at delay in flap coverage past seven days increases the complication for open tibia fractures, a cohort study of 140 North American trauma centers. So this was a big old study. Um, they did a re retrospective cohort study. They pulled a lot of information and their objective was to determine if, they, if you delay flap coverage, if it's associated with inpatient complications with a primary outcome looking at infection. And so our primary outcomes were deep infection, osteomyelitis or amputation. The hypothesis that they were testing was a delay in flap coverage will lead to higher incidence of infection. That's what they were looking at. And how were they going to do that? They, they evaluated infection as a continuous variable and also as dichotomous, which basically means taking a look at the seven-day cutoff. If they had a flap cover before seven days, was that associated with a better outcome than after seven days? An important note is they were doing it this is seven days after arrival to the hospital. And so they weren't able to really take, a, to, to take into account if they were a transfer from another hospital, if they're outside and waiting for a day or two, 
that was not something they were able to, to, to take a look at. And they do acknowledge that in their results. But and actually, I, I think that, quote, weakness actually does uh, help us trust these results a little bit longer, be, or a little bit more, because a longer delay prior to presentation means that their, their length until flap might be a little bit longer. And I did want to make one, one final note as well is the reason why they chose the seven days instead of that five days we were talking about before is because that's what's recommended in our current OTA best practices for the care of trauma patient guidelines. And so that's how they chose their seven day cutoff um, and overall um, guidance. So taking a look at population, it's a trauma population, adults greater than 16, an AIS, no, not the ISS, of, of greater than three, so a, lot, a heavy trauma to a specific area. They underwent surgery for open tibia and a soft tissue flap. Ultimately, they identified 672 patients at 140 institutions, so a very, very broad group. They had 260 people who went, underwent uh, early coverage, less than seven days from arrival, and 412 that underwent delayed uh, coverage. They did some fancy statistical analysis and, and, uh, and trying to reduce the confounding. They, they matched based on multiple different things and they matched a group of 227 patients, which is 87% of the available 260 patients. Um, before they matched, they did find that the people in the delayed group were more likely to be obese. They were more likely to have a higher injury severity score or be involved in a motorcycle collision. However, after matching that, uh, that difference, that difference was, uh, was obviated. They were able to get a, a good match group. And that's the reason why they're doing it because we do know folks that are, that are delayed for flap because you only can, you only can flap once the patient is stable and ready for a flap. So higher injury makes sense that it might take longer. And of course that might also cause an increased risk for infection, but they were able to do some some fancy matching and hopefully be able to account for that, at least make us trust these results a, a little bit more. So overall, what they find? They found that early coverage helped prevent uh, infection. So they had uh, a p-value of less than 0 0.001. Um, and that is a, a composite score and their deep infection was lower with a p-value of 0 0.004. They had a less uh, osteomyelitis with a p-value of 0 0.002. Um, this is a very heavy statistical uh, article. And so as someone with a, a great background in mean, median, and mode, but nothing really beyond that, it, it, I really am kind of trusting them, a lot of the, the stuff that they did, but trying to, to look at it and just even just taking a step back and looking at this, does the overall premise make sense that if we cover earlier, infection goes down? Yes, that does make sense. And so that all combined makes me really understand and appreciate the, what they've done here to, to give us some hard data to support that. I included at the bottom of the slide here, they did the dichotomous, the seven days, before seven days and after seven days, which showed a, a decrease in infection. They also include their, their continuous variable chart. And so the days versus the probability of a composite outcome or infection. And we do say that it stays low, there's a little bit of a dip or a decrease in risk of infection that starts around day four or five and then starts going up after day seven. And so that does go along with our earlier paper that we were talking about where they saw that uh, coverage within five days was associated with decreased infection. And so I think this, this kind of all comes together and tells us that earlier coverage is better to help prevent infection. 
some important numbers or interesting things that we can say is that there's a delay in FAP coverage, flap coverage longer than seven days from arrival increases complications with a number needed to harm of 10. And like we were saying before, all of this kind of makes sense. So, so why is it important to have this papers? It, it can really help with our communication with our colleagues. We can talk with our plastics colleagues. Hey, you know, we're, we're pushing to get this flap coverage as soon as we can, because we do know that if we get this done before five days, before seven days, it will have a, an, an actual important outcome difference for our patients and can really just help with that communication. Um, and then interestingly enough, they looked at this longer delay and we know that it's after seven days, it's not like the, the horse is out of the barn. A longer delay continues to worsen the outcome. We have a 40% increased adjusted risk every week of delay. So the longer that you continue to wait is the, the, the worse or the, the more likely an infection is. And then an important note um, at the very end, this is kind of my, my last thing, is that they did find taking a look at the time from definitive fixation to flap coverage was actually not associated with increased complications. And they, they just mentioned this as to suggest that perhaps it isn't the fact that um, there is exposed hardware or um, there's a, a delay between fixation and coverage, but rather the importance is we just get early coverage. That being said, I think any surgeon would prefer not to be looking down at metal, but to have good soft tissue coverage over it. Um, so overall, this kind of supports uh, uh, the what we were talking about with our two patients. We want to get them to the OR early, and we want to get their flap coverage early as well. Let's take a look at uh, kind of that timeline between initial debridement and final coverage. What do we do with the wound in the, in the interim? So let's take a look. All right, so I'm going to be discussing this article by Bloom et al. Negative pressure wound therapy reduces the deep infection rate in open tibia fractures. As a bit of a background, um, negative wound therapy is also probably more popularly known as wound vac or even a vacuum assisted wound therapy came about in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And what it, what it is, it's um, really just like a, a foam with, or gauze with an adhesive film over it. And that adhesive film kind of helps get that vacuum seal. And then there's a tube connected to a vacuum pump and the pump is what generates the, the negative pressure and with that negative pressure it helps drain fluid from the wound it helps reduce the swelling and it also helps to stimulate uh, new tissue growth and so what this paper is looking at is investigating the outcomes of using a wound vac or negative wound therapy in open tibial fractures for the patients and methods, it was a retrospective cohort study at uh, two level one trauma centers from about 2002 to 2007. And they included patients who had open tibia fractures and who patients who were either treated with the negative pressure wound therapy or conventional dressings. They didn't include any patients who were managed with both the conventional and negative pressure wound therapy and also they didn't include patients who had immediate soft tissue closure after their their injury and what they were the outcome they were using to compare these two groups 
uh, was deep infection rate. Uh, so just to recap, the two groups are patients with open tibial factors who were treated with negative pressure wound therapy, and then patients with open tibial fractures who were treated with the conventional dressings. So it ended up being about 220 patients who met the inclusion criteria. A majority of them were treated with negative pressure wound therapy, 166 to be exact, and 63 of them were treated with the conventional dressing. And in comparing the two groups, there was no significant difference in the ISS score between those two groups, but a higher proportion of the people in the negative pressure wound therapy had type 3 fractures, and also a higher proportion of patients had an ISS score greater than 15, meaning that they suffered major trauma in, in the negative pressure group as well. The results found that there was significantly lower deep infection rate in fractures that were treated with the negative pressure wound therapy compared to conventional. And the, if you want to know the specific numbers, 8.4% of deep infection rate in the negative pressure group and 20.6% deep infection rate in the um, conventional group. And in terms of discussion and conclusion, I, I think this paper was really well done. It was very simple and straightforward. And uh, it really shows that deep infection is reduced in open tibial fractures by the use of uh, negative pressure wound therapy. And one of the theories or one of the um, hypotheses behind of uh, the authors think behind this finding is the improved bacterial clearance that the wound therapy negative wound therapy offers because as you know with the negative pressure it's, it's um, draining out all the excess blood and all the excess fluid from the wound and so that helps with the bacterial clearance as well in terms of limitations of this study the major one is the fact that it's not a randomized controlled trial. It's um, a retrospective cohort study. So there was no randomized design. The surgeons were the ones who selected which patients go into the wound vac group and which patients go into the conventional group. And you never, we don't know what factors the surgeons were considering when categorizing these patients into one group or the other. So that's that's one major limitation. Um, but overall, the authors su support the use of UNVAC in the enclosure of open integral factors. And yeah, that brings me to the end of this paper. But um, I was going to ask Matt, in his experience or your experience, what, what are the criteria you use to decide whether or not a patient is going to is going to get a wound vac after after surgery for sure yeah and, and I'll, i will give you my very much non-expert opinion but i will say it's it's this paper is a really great example of of kind of why or or the, the reasoning behind what we do what we do and so basically someone comes in with a, a big soft tissue injury and we're unable to close that that person's getting a wound back as, as this paper right. shows yeah, as this paper shows, um, we're going to decrease 
the infection rate if we do that. And that's, that's fantastic. So taking a look at our two patients, is there one you'd feel comfortable or, or looking at this, do you think the healthier guy could get away with conventional dressings or do you think we'd want to wound back on both? I would say a wound vac for both because if I remember correctly, the 30-year-old had a Gostio type 3B fracture as well. So um, even looking at this paper, majority of the, the patients in the wound vac group had type 3 fractures. So that would be a good, that the young patient would be a good candidate for, for wound vac treatment. And I, d I don't see any negatives from, from that. It would help with um, the um, tissue, new tissue growth. It would help reduce swelling. Uh, it would help um, reduce the bacterial burden in the wound. So, yeah, I think Perfect. it would be a good yeah. candidate. One thing also that I think was very interesting <coughs> is that um, the period which this study was conducted 2002 to 2007 was really a changeover period where the wound vac was becoming the standard of care and as time went on during the study you would see that the um, use of wound vac therapy increased over the years while the use of conventional dressing decreased over the years and that kind of explains why majority of the patients were in the wound vac cohort and um, a small group were in the conventional dressing cohort. And so this paper really came at a very timely, well, this paper was really timely because it, it offers very objective data on the use of wound vac in specific situations, in this case, open tibial fractures. For sure, yeah, and I think that that just really shows people were really realizing how useful and and and, uh, and beneficial these negative pressure wound back or wound therapies are, particularly for these uh, multiply injured patients or these big wounds. I mean, we don't have to change them twice a day. It's it's more comfortable for the patient. It is associated with a, a decreased risk of infection. And I think something that's also pretty powerful from this paper is the fact that we found that these were typically used for sicker patients or people, patients with a higher injury severity score. And so those are typically people we'd expect to have higher rates of infection. But in right. fact, when we treat them with the, the, new, the negative pressure, they actually have a lower rate of infection. And so that's, I think, a pretty powerful thing that, that supports what kind of makes sense and gives a, gives a lot of power of like, you know what, no, we want to be doing these, these, uh, these wound back therapies for these patients. Uh, to go back to your question, like when then, okay, so when do we do our our conventional dressings? That's usually when we're starting to look at patients who are, are looking at uh, secondary intention, just it's going to be a while. Maybe if it's a little bit deeper of a wound, but there still is a firm uh, wound base, it's just not amenable to that kind of broad wound back. Um, but that being said, a, a lot of things that can be treated with conventional dressings can be treated with a wound back, and uh, it is a very, very beneficial uh, treatment. And so we do like to think about that first and then be able to, to adjust fire from there yeah um, i remember i remember the first time i saw a, a wound vac in in the hospital i i was i wasn't sure what 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 exactly it was but over time i got to find out that it's pretty important in terms of especially in terms of uh, trauma patients like well, I can tell you, as an intern, you will become very familiar with the function of a wound back and the things <laughs> that can go wrong with them as well. <laughs> um, all right, let's take a look at our last paper here. 
Hey guys, it's uh, Nick again. We're going to be talking about the effect of intra-wound vancomycin powder in intraoperatively treated high-risk tibia fractures. Uh, this was by Dr. O'Toole et al., uh, published in May of 2021. All right, so we've been talking a lot about you know ways we can reduce surgical site infections over the last couple of minutes. Um, and Dr. O'Toole and his team were like, hey, you know, we're still using IV antibiotics and we're having still high rates of surgical site infections. So the issue is, is IV antibiotics uh, can only be delivered to tissues uh, with an intact blood supply. Uh, and this can certainly be compromised in people with uh, acute fractures. So Dr. O'Toole and his team were like, hey, why don't we study taking a little vancomycin powder uh, and putting it in the wound uh, intraoperatively? Uh, or in the trauma bay or, or wherever appropriate uh, to see if that changes uh, the incidence of surgical site infections. So who are we looking at here? So we had uh, adults who were operatively treated for a tibial plateau or a pylon fracture uh, who are also at high risk for infection. Uh, the team, the research team uh, gave them 1000 milligrams of vancomycin powder uh, applied to the fracture intraoperatively uh, in addition to standard uh, prevention protocol. The control group just received standard uh, invention protocol. The outcomes we were looking at were deep surgical site infections within 182 days of definitive fracture fixation. So what did uh, Dr. O'Toole and his team find? It was quite dramatic uh, change in the uh, incidence of surgical site infections. So the control group uh, had a incidence of 9.2%, while the treatment group who received uh, intraoperative locally applied vancomycin powder had an incidence of 6%. So about a decrease in 3% with uh, vancomycin powder uh, applied to the wound directly. He also looked at the effect of gram-positive organisms uh, versus gram-negatives. So the decrease in gram-positives between the, the uh, control group and the treatment group was decreased by 3.7%. Uh, and of course, this is consistent with the uh, activity of vancomycin. The gram-negative incidence was about the same. The relative risk was 0.03%. Uh, so what we see is a decrease in uh, gram-positive organisms with the locally applied vancomycin powder. So what are some big conclusions to draw from Dr. O'Toole's paper? Uh, Intra-wound vancomycin powder reduces the uh, gram-positive infection rates in patients with high-risk uh, tibial plateau and pylon fractures. During their study, they did not uh, have any negative effects that were observed. They concluded this is a pretty low cost intervention that can supplement current protocols uh, relatively simply. There's a pretty great paper. Uh, it's not too uh, science heavy, not too statistic heavy. It's a, it's a pretty uh, easy read if anyone's interested in, in looking a little bit more at why we do this. Okay, right on. Yeah, Nick, you're exactly right. It's it's something that makes sense. I think it's something that's, that was interesting is how they looked at its effect on gram positive versus gram negatives. And vancomycin only hits gram positives. And what they saw in their their study was, you know, what this only affected gram positives. So we're pretty sure that the vancomycin is doing something. Uh, so it's it's pretty good. It's just a little adjunct that we can use at the time of surgery to help help prevent infection. And we're we're looking for any edge we can get. Um, but Nick, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here, and I'm gonna have you take us through, we have our 30 year old male. He comes into the, the trauma bay, looking at all the papers we've done today. What are you doing? So you have you have a second, the, the general surgery team 
gives you their blessing. They're getting ready, everything ready to go upstairs with the fast positive. Uh, and you've got about 10 minutes with the patient before he goes upstairs. What are you, what are you trying to make sure that this person's getting? Right. Well, of course, uh, as we presented earlier, he needs to get IV antibiotics as quick as we can to uh, decrease the um, incidence of, of uh, any surgical site infection. And of course, in our, that, that can be our 30 or 60 year old patient. And of course, in the 60 year old patient, we need to be uh, careful with his comorbidities. He had uh, diabetes. So we might need to work with our anesthesia colleagues, make sure his uh, kidney function is good to receive uh, vancomycin powder. And that's the same with the uh, intraoperative uh, uh, locally applied vancomycin. We need to be sure, you know, when we're giving um, it to either the 30 or 60 year old, that they have uh, good kidney function. Uh, especially in the 60-year-old patient, there is probably, you know, some systemic absorption, even though it's locally applied, uh, working closely with our anesthesia colleagues, uh, making sure we're not doing uh, more harm than good to the, per the, to the patient when we're sure. uh, throwing this mancomycin around. Yeah. For sure. No, yeah, 100%. You're exactly right. And, and, and as you were saying in the paper, you know, they didn't see any negative effects uh, in, their, in their study and it's locally applied. So the, the theoretical risks are pretty low, but exactly right. Good looking out. We want to make sure we're talking with everyone in the team, making sure we're considering everything that, you know, even though it's locally applied, there probably is, or there has to be at least some, some systemic absorption. So, yeah. So you see them in the, the, the trauma bay, you get the antibiotics on board, you do a local debridement to get the, a little bit of the debridement going. So we head back to the emergency, or we go head back to the OR, gen surge, calls you like two hours later, okay, they're done with their part, you're okay with us coming and doing whatever we wanna do. Uh, what do you wanna do uh, at that point? Right, so that's when our uh, rotational flaps are coming in, right? So we can uh, speak with our gen surge colleagues, our plastic colleagues, whoever's working with that, uh, make sure they're gonna get added with uh, tissue coverage, and then as we also were exploring after the surgery, we need to can toss around the idea of uh, putting a wound vac on there. Yeah, right. So we can take a look, see if they're amenable for an immediate flap and more than likely they're not going to be. We can, but we start the communication there. So that way it's on uh, the radar for the plastics colleagues. But if they're not ready yet, we put a wound vac on them. We, we send them back to the floor. We bring them back for regular debridements. And then as soon as they're ready to flap, we, uh, we do a fix and flap if we can to keep it all um, as, as quick as possible, or if they need to get fixed and then come back quickly for a flap later on, that, that would also uh, work. And we're looking for that time frame of, of five to seven days. Uh, right on. Awesome. Perfect. Um, just to, in conclusion, I did want to say, so um, this, the, the soft tissue management and the soft tissue aspect of, of trauma patients, and you'll hear a lot of traumatologists say, you know, a, a open fracture or a traumatic fracture is a broken bone with a soft tissue injury around it. And we need to make sure that we're, we're dealing with both. And in fact, looking at the WHO's evaluation of, uh, of hospitals or, or the delivery of care, they look at three main um, surgeries that need to be able to happen. If they look at a hospital and they're able to perform or, or take care of three specific things, they say that this is a hospital that can provide adequate care for the surrounding area. And they define uh, like a, a, a high performing medical system by if, if your population is within two hours of a hospital that can perform a C-section, uh, laparoscopy, or manage an open fracture. And so management of open fractures and soft tissue injuries is a very important thing for ongoing population health and, and for the evaluation of healthcare systems. And so it's definitely something we wanna make sure that we're a bit able to do. It's, it's one thing that we can do to really help folks and help prevent some pretty 
bad things down the line with a complicated uh, infection just makes everyone's life a little bit worse. Um, but thanks for your, your attention. Thanks for everyone's work. Good work, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys for the next one. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed listening to it and editing it. And it was, uh, it was great. I learned a lot. Learn a lot every time from listening to these guys and ladies talk. So without further ado, please hit the subscribe button. Tell one person about this. You know, we have a new group of people that have all just started their orthopedic surgery residency and we're all just trying to learn as much as we can so please share this with your colleagues and your friends and without further ado we will see you all next week